Thank you, Chris, for those kind words, and thank you for inviting me to come. Nice to be here, and please know that you're in my prayers. As far as uh, finding a new senior pastor, that's a huge, uh, huge thing, and I pray that God gives you uh, grace and calls someone uh, to be a blessing to this uh, community through that role. How many of you grew up in the church? How many of you have been a believer in Jesus for more than 10 years? Okay, so I, I'm looking at a, a room full of longtime followers of Jesus. God called me to follow him uh, from very young age uh, and wandered off somewhere in middle school. And um, interesting thing I discovered, though, doesn't matter how many steps you are away from Jesus as far as many, how many you've taken away from him, it's just one step back to him, and when he called, when he called me, it was amazing to. Uh, it was almost like I heard an audible voice when I was was sixteen. Uh, surrendered my life to Jesus, and almost immediately he gave me a call to be a pastor. And uh, he gives all of us a specific call. He gives all of us a specific gift or series of gifts. Some of you, it's to speak or to lead. Some of you, it's to serve, to show mercy, to heal. Uh, whatever that gift is, whatever that call he gives you, it's a call that in, involves you using the resources and the ability that God has given you to be a blessing to others. And maybe you're here today and you haven't ever uh, felt that call. Uh, maybe you've never trusted fully in, in Jesus. Best decision I ever made was to follow Jesus. Uh, the, the most fulfilling things that I've uh, done in life have been in response to God's call in his direction, and I certainly encourage you to take that step if you haven't. Uh, but as far as uh, where I am currently, I am pastor in Issaquah, and I have an absolute uh, darling family. I think there's a, a slide, a picture of my wife and I uh, rooting on the Mariners and my four kids there uh, celebrating the recent graduation of my daughter Carolyn, uh, from high school. So there's Nathan, who's 21, Carolyn, who's 19, uh, Lizzie, who's uh, with us here today, who's 11, and then Elena, who's 16. Uh, but amazing kids, and certainly that's uh, one of the true joys of my life. And in the middle of being a pastor and a dad, this question often comes to me, which is, is, is ministry, is using the gifts that God's given you to be a blessing to others, is that hard or easy? Is it a difficult thing or is it an easy thing? You think about Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, come to me. My, my burden is light. My yoke is easy. And there's other passages like take up your cross and follow me that might insinuate uh, it's difficult. Certainly in my years of following Jesus, I found that opposition is common. Sometimes from outside the church, sometimes inside expectations are high. You go out to accomplish something, to, to do what God's calling you to do. You've, you know you've got God's equipping and God's power, so you expect things to go amazing. Uh, but conflict is a regular part of life in a church. Disappointment, both in yourself and in others around you, is a regular occurrence. So... When I speak today about this topic, I know I'm speaking to an audience who has experienced it, and I really have the same exhortation to you, which is just a pastoral word for strong encouragement. 
That whatever difficulty you're facing, perhaps whatever church hurt you have experienced recently or, uh, or in such a deep way that although it didn't happen recently, it still has feelings uh, that, that are brought up when you think about what's happened. I'm going to give you the same encouragement that Paul gave to a church in Corinth, which is despite difficulty, opposition, bitterness, whatever it is, Paul told this to the church in Corinth, stand firm in the faith. He said, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, and do everything in love. And I want you to think about this term in military terms, Roman military terms. This is, a, this is something that, an instruction that is given to a group of people, not a person. You have a hard time standing firm by yourself. Think about it in light of a Roman military uh, formation. Standing shield to shield with other Christians. And on the bottom of your feet, you have cleats on the bottom of your sandals so that when the enemy charges at your formation, that you can stand firm in the faith. And I want you to think about this. Even having this instruction should alert you, if you're new to the faith, that it will not be easy. We should be aware of that as we go forward. And that shouldn't surprise us. Doing something beautiful is never easy. And if you open your New Testament to the book of Acts, if you read church history, you know that every single one of the apostles, save John, died due to some sort of violent means, whether it was being crucified upside down or in the cross the shape of an X like Andrew or a riot that killed Thomas In faraway India, only the Apostle John died of natural causes and he still had to endure exile. And it's interesting, maybe even inspiring sometimes to see others endure persecution. When we endure it personally, it's painful, it's intense, and it causes us to question what's going on. And so this is a relevant topic, not only for Christians in the first century, but in Walla Walla today. But for such a serious topic, we ought to go before our Heavenly Father, and so I urge you to bow your head with me. Father, your name is above our names. It is worthy of glory and honor, and uh, Father, the, the most eloquent person couldn't say it in, in a way that would truly express the depth and the width of your honor. But Father, we do honor you today. We long for your kingdom being fully realized, not only in our own hearts, but also in our city, our block, our family, our region, our country, our world. And as we approach this topic, it's right for us to to forgive those who have hurt us, whether outside the church in opposition to us or those inside that have done it perhaps even on accident. But Father, we forgive them because you have already forgiven us. Keep us steady, keep us grounded, keep us courageous, keep us stronger than what tempts us. Keep us loving because of the hope that is in us. Father, we trust you to provide what we need, not only physically, but emotionally. And personally, Father, I ask that you would help me to be a blessing to someone here today. May you have all the glory, you are worthy of it, amen. Difficulty is designed to make you quit. Parents count on this. Soldiers count on this. 
And it's the nature of the challenge of following Jesus. The enemy wants us to quit. And I would say I have personally quit. The first ministry job that I had that was outside my home church where they had several apprenticeships. In college, I, had, I taught Sunday school classes and, and helped t- t- tutor uh, orphans. And uh, I worked for my father-in-law. But all that really is kind of chalked up to internship and almost practice. But the first ministry job I had, a while into it, I had a significant theological disagreement with the pastor Really, it was almost like it was a minor interpretation of a of a peripheral passage. But either way, they asked. They said clearly, "You're not meant to be here," and they slammed the door in my face. And I can, can remember feeling, "Well, that that was uh, brutal." Just got fired, sitting in my car, fighting back tears, and just felt like God had not only physically but metaphorically closed the door on ministry. And I just quit. Was bitter was angry, church ministry shouldn't work out like that, and I immediately turned to my second love, first love being first calling, first love ministry, second love, second calling history, and I went to Washington State University to study history. So I've, I've experienced this hardship in ministry, and the tendency is to quit. And you and I personally, we know that our culture is increasingly hostile to faith. Certainly true in King County, where I minister, and I know it's true here as well. But with this in mind, with this cultural reality in mind, difficulty making us quit, a group of pastors got together, about over a hundred of us, to prepare a sermon series. And the sermon series was over the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and they used to be one book. Now we divide them into two. But we, just, we study them as a whole with a goal of us studying... God's word together so that we can stand firm in the faith together against the inevitable opposition in the Seattle area. And we labeled this sermon series, Unfinished Hope. And there's a slide for this, and and there's a red fox on the front, and the red fox represents the cultural, the way the culture mocks us. See, in the middle of Nehemiah, or the way that the, the person taught us to say it, Nehemiah, as he's building this wall with no wall builders. He's building it with people of various talents, but nobody's uh, an expert at wall building. And the culture comes up and they see this wall and they laugh at it and they say, Nehemiah, this wall is so pathetic, if a red fox ran up it, it would knock it over. And so we take this, this book and we study it together and we preach it together. And it reminded me of not only Israel's hope in that age, but our experience as missionaries to our culture, our city, and our, our block. And so as I bring it to you together for first point, I want to talk about what standing fast, standing firm in the faith, looked like for the people in the Old Testament. There were specific prophetic hopes that people in Ezra and Nehemiah's day were looking forward to. First hope of a future messianic king. While they had been in exile, Isaiah had prophesied that there would be a future messianic king. He also, the prophets also prophesied that God's presence would be obvious, would be present in the new temple. 
And that God's kingdom over all of the nations would be realized. And that all of the promises made to Abraham would also be fulfilled. And while these prophets didn't specifically say they were going to happen in Ezra and Nehemiah's time, they were hoping that this would actually happen. And and amazing things happen. You have three different men who were called by God for this book. You have Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and there are these amazing prophetic hopes and expectations in this book. And I don't know how many of you, as you begin a new ministry, as you begin perhaps as you volunteer for Awana, as you work in your growth groups, as you are in in your Sunday school classes, or maybe you, you feel like God's calling you to be a minister in your home and you just, you begin to envision what this should look like. Maybe you look at the New Testament and say, this is what a family should look like, and so we're going to try our best to, to get there. When I was at Washington State, God began to talk to me, remind me of the calling that he'd given me. He called me to be a pastor. When I was 16, I had made tentative steps, and when it got hard, I saw it as a closed door, went the other way, just like Jonah. But as I'm studying at Washington State, as I'm teaching history as an instructor at Washington State, it was fascinating to to go through this calling because every time I would teach history, it would it was almost like I would have to stop myself from making a sermon illustration out of these historical stories in front of my students. And, I, and God kept telling me, you know, I called you to be a pastor, and I kept, yeah, I tried that. It didn't work out so good. And in the middle of this conflict, I prayed this uh, beautiful, dangerous prayer. I, I got down on my knees and I said, God, this... This conflict is difficult for me to process. Would you please lead me clearly so I can follow you? If you want me to be a pastor, not a professor, please make it clear. And I'll do whatever you want. So half an hour later, I get an email. Ding. And it's Dr. Bruce Pinkleton, and he teaches communication at Washington State. He's part of our our church. He's a friend. uh, I've heard him speak a number of times. And he said, hey, could we meet? And I said, sure, Bruce, let's meet at the bookie. So we go to the bookie, we, I sit down, I have, I'm having a coffee in my hand, and in comes Bruce. And, and Bruce is very stately, he's, he's uh, got a great posture, he's what you would expect from a communications uh, professor, and he looks as nervous and uncomfortable as I've ever seen him. And he comes and he sits down and he says, don't say anything, just let me finish. He says, I was praying this morning, doing my devotions, and I felt like God was telling me to tell you that you should be a pastor, not a professor. (laughs) I just thought to myself, boy, that's subtle. That's really subtle, God. (laughs) A year later, I find myself in, on the east side, in Issaquah, planting a church in obedience to God, with a little bit of vision and lots of very specific prayers answered. And in the middle of all this, though, I was part of a church planning movement, and I don't know how many of you have ever seen a church planning video, but they'll show a video of, uh, of their city, and there's these beautiful cityscapes, and there's people walking around, and there's, there's sad, um, contemplative, royalty-free music uh, playing in the background, 
and lots of what-if statements and this amazing vision of what the city could look like if it was fully submitted to Jesus and living their lives to bless others instead of just accumulate stuff. But in all of these videos, and all of the vision that God gave me for that church, there was nothing as amazing as what Ezra and Nehemiah were given as far as a vision. This messianic king, this, this right ruler who's both powerful and just. God himself among the people. God's kingdom fully realized. All of these amazing promises to Abraham fulfilled. And then you have the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. You have this amazing, repetitive series of panels. So if you think about it artistically, you have the same thing happen to Zerubbabel, the same thing happened to Ezra, and then the same thing happened to Nehemiah. The first thing that happens is God's favor. Each of them are called into the king's presence and effectively given a blank check. The king of of Persia says these amazing things like, well, you know, Ezra, the king of, the God of Israel deserves to be worshipped. You should go back and, and make that happen. Same thing with Nehemiah, same thing with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel sent in first. He lays the foundation for the temple and builds the altar. And then they have an amazing worship service. At the end of the worship service, Zerubbabel looks over at the elders, the one that can remember the old temple. They're not clapping, they're not cheering, they are weeping. Ezra is sent by the king of Persia back to Israel to restore the community by preaching the word of God. And he preaches the word of God. And he preaches it and teaches it well. And he shows them this is what it says. This is what we're going to do. All right, let's go do it. And a couple of them do it. And then he comes back a week later and the people have slid back to their old ways of doing things into what Ezra calls detestable idolatry. Which means they're sacrificing their children and the men are visiting ritual prostitutes. Panel one, God's favor. Panel two, they're overcoming amazing, amazing obstacles, getting to the land. And panel three, there's just this, this deflating, disappointing, what's going on? Nehemiah comes to straighten things out. God says, all right, we have the temple foundation We have the community starting to come together. Now I want you to build walls, but building walls isn't easy either. They have so much opposition around them that Nehemiah has a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And so the work goes slow and and they they finally finish the walls and both Ezra and Nehemiah are not pleased with the community. And so they go to extreme discipleship. And I don't know if you've ever been part of a church that went extreme discipleship, but this is clearly a case of extreme discipleship where you have a seven-day Torah reading marathon, and then everybody comes forward and signs a commitment card and says, we're going to do it, and then they come back a couple weeks later, and the people are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not following instructions. They're back into idolatry. They're profaning the Sabbath, and Nehemiah just loses it. Have you ever seen a pastor lose it? It's disconcerting. It's disconcerting. The the picture I had up that you you can't you can't see, so I'll describe it for you. At the end of the story, uh, Nehemiah just uh, goes in and starts punching heretics in the face, 
and grabs hold of their hair and pulls it out. And at the end of all that, um, goes before God and says, hey, please remember me. I tried my best. Book ends. No happy ending. No restoration, just unfinished things, nice tries, disappointments. I think you could name the whole book Unfinished. And I don't know if you can relate. I don't know if you've ever had one of those unfinished, unfinished ministry moments where you're really hoping things were going to go well and they just didn't. Maybe you're part of a church that was going really well, but then a serious problem just wrecks everything. Maybe you've seen pastors who had an amazing uh, ministry and legacy, but then there's just some huge, glaring problems. We are part of a network, and in the, in the main church in the network in 2014 had 15,000 people for Easter. The next year, none. And as we look at Nehemiah's disappointment and Ezra's disappointment and Zerubbabel's disappointment in panel three, we asked ourselves, were these people discouraged? Did they feel like quitting? I think they did. If you look at the last instruction in the Old Testament, it's from Malachi chapter four. The prophet says, remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant, my servant, all of the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel, which is another way of saying, stand firm in the faith. And of course, we are not immune to this type of difficulty in the New Testament. We also have high expectations If you look at what Jesus said the church would be like in the New Testament. He said this church is supposed to be made up of people who believe and obey everything that I taught. Wouldn't that be amazing? It's a holy, it's supposed to be a holy, powerful, complete church according to Ephesians chapter 1. Good works are to be seen by the whole community. A people who rescues people, who love people sacrificially. It's to be a united church made of all peoples, united by Christ, filled by the Spirit, saved by grace, and a church that can't be conquered. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so as, I, as we were going through Ezra and Nehemiah, I kept thinking about the three panels in Issaquah. All the amazing ways that God called me. And so we we go and we set up shop in Issaquah with our church planning team of 13 people. And we go up to the leaders of the community in Issaquah and we ask them, is there anything that we can do? We're a brand new church. We would love just to serve you. And uh, they said, we're not really excited about a new church. I said, okay. What can we do to serve you? I said, what, is there anything that no one else in the community wants to do but just needs done? I said, well, you know, in a couple of weeks we're, we're dedicating a dog park. I don't know if you know this about King County, but in many places there's more dogs than kids. So they're dedicating a new dog park and we need someone to give away hot dogs. Just, just seems so wrong on so many levels, but I'd, I'd offered to help and so... I think we've got a picture of it, us at the dog park giving away hot dogs. And so that went well, and we came back to them the next month and said, what else needs done? They said, well, we have this 
Halloween thing coming up. We need people to serve. All you guys have to do is just dress up in a nice way and, and show up. And I said, well, I'm going to be out of town. I was going to be in Walla Walla. But my, I delegated it to my team, and they decided they were going to dress up like the Peanuts gang. And I wouldn't have supported that. That's embarrassing. But um, that's what they did. And I came back and asked for a report. I said, how'd the pumpkin carving go? That's what we were assigned to do. And the lady just starts to cry. And I said, oh, no. I'm sorry. And she said, no, no, I, I way under-recruited. Pastors and community leaders do that sometimes, just way under-recruit. And so she burned out everybody for the setup. They were so exhausted. She just said, okay, you guys can go home. And as she's taking the deposit for the festival to the bank, what's going through her mind is, how in the world am I going to get 100 tables folded up, taken back to the community center by myself? And she deposits it, comes back up, and Linus, or Craig, uh, in the picture runs up and says, hey, we just put away all the tables, brought them back to the community center, what else she wants to do? And she was so exhausted, she said, I just cried. Just so happy and tired. And so she brings out this rent form. And, you know, our rent was really reasonable, but she she brought this rent form and she said, I would just want you in that line right there to fill in whatever number you want. And I said, well, the rent's fair. Why are you doing this? She said, well, I don't want you guys to ever leave the community. You guys are so good to us. You serve us so well. Just fill in whatever number you want. And so in this this panel one of God's favor, just so beautiful, we, we get to see God using us in the community. I think we've got a baptism picture. We see people who are avowed atheists come to faith and be baptized. And then God leads us through overcoming obstacles. When I planned the church, I wanted the church to be just a little bit cooler than the church I grew up in. That was my hope. And what I found out when I was in Seattle is that no one wants to come to a worship service. They don't see the relevance of faith. And so we'd invite them, we'd have special speakers, and hey, this amazing band's going to be there, and they don't care. And God whispered in her ear, well, why don't you go to them? I'm sending you to them. Why don't you go to them? And so we began to invite them into our home. My younger brother's a chef. I'd call him up say, hey, what's the most popular dish in your restaurant right now? And he'd tell me, and I'm like, how do you make that? And he'd tell me how to make it, and then I'd make it for the neighborhood, invite everybody over, and they loved it. We had a winemaker as a friend. I don't know if you know any winemakers here in town, but uh, we have we had a winemaker as a friend. He gave us a couple nice bottles, and I just told my friends, hey, I got this really nice, expensive bottle of wine. Would you guys like to come over and just do a little wine tasting? And they came. And we began to see that God was calling us to use the gifts he gave us uh, just to be hospitable to people, to show them love in our neighborhood. But you know, there was a panel three that came next. You know, the, when I was about 10 years into, into pastoring at that location, I started researching what the average length of ministry is for a pastor. It's about 10 years. And most of them, when the survey people ask them, they say, why are you leaving the ministry? Well, they're pastors, so they've got to say something that rhymes and easy to remember. So they say... I'm leaving the ministry because I've got nothing in the bank and I've got nothing left in the tank. And for the first time, I could really relate to that. 
and I had all these head-on-the-desk moments. You know, when you change the church, when you go a new direction, people, well, they like the previous direction, so they leave. And often they would leave without saying goodbye. There were people that we would pour out our hearts and we would empty our bank account to help and we would help them and give them all we could and there was certain, there's always a certain point where you can't help anymore and when you say no, they're in such a weak emotional condition that they just get mad and leave. And I remember at, as the church budget dipped during the, the recession and having to lay off staff and beginning to put my resume out, just thinking to myself, wow, this is not how I expected it to be. And those lack of thank yous began to pile up. It sounds shallow to say it, but I think I just often expected that when we showed sacrificial love to people that they would naturally say thank you. And, and all of the, you guys know how it is with churches, you have uh, people come for a season and then leave and that just tears a little bit of your heart out each time. The way that I responded to it was a very typical Dean way of responding to something. I just worked harder. I just, well, I've got to figure this out. We've got to do this better. We've got to minister better. Jesus, we've got to just do things more effectively. And I just wore myself right out. I remember at the end of one of these periods of working really hard, I drove home and I passed roadkill on the side of the road. Probably was a raccoon. Hard to tell at that point. I remember looking at it and just with a little bit of envy. And I thought to myself, well, at least, at least he's resting. And either that night or another night, I, Catherine, noticing just the general depressed nature I was in, said, how are you feeling, dear? And I said, I feel like a sponge that's been squeezed out, twisted, thrown on the ground, stomped on till every little bit of water is out and then hated for being empty and having nothing left to give. And then I would look around at our movement and, and, I, and God allowed us to be part of either by training or by assessing or equipping or sometimes funding dozens of churches all over the Northwest. And then several years in, you know, churches, church plants die between 80 and 90% of the time. And so we just started watching them not, not succeed, not succeed, not succeed. I put a slide up and this won't matter to you personally, but, um, but that was a celebration for three guys that were starting to plant a church. And all of them failed. None of the churches survived. And honestly, most of the early pictures of, of our church bring pain because they remind me of failure. And even my denomination, I watched the, the denomination I grew up in, uh, one of the leaders came in seeing the state of our denomination and gave each of the leaders a book. It was called The, the Autopsy of a Dying Church. And most of the pastors that read that book and discussed it as a group saw that the book was recommending that they simply close their churches down and give the building to a new church planner. So with these high expectations and these, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail promised to us by Jesus, it's just a panel three anticlimactic. And in the midst of this is this instruction by Paul. Stand firm in the faith. Paul is telling us 
He said, I want you to be on your guard. I want you to realize there is difficulty, there is brokenheartedness, there's opposition. So I want you to be on your guard and I want you to stand firm in the faith. I want you to bear under it. I want you to be strong. And he has this amazing phrase. And we translate it, be men of courage. What it really says in the Greek is, be men. Now, it, that's, a duff, that's a tough statement to say in our uh, very uh, beautiful, equitable society that we're in at the moment. And it's not a chauvinistic phrase, but I think many of you can understand this, the Roman culture told its men to be courageous. The civilization depended on it. And so when I hear that, I really hear John Wayne in my head saying, be men. Be men. Be men of courage. And, and know that one of the most beautiful examples of being a man of courage in the early church was a woman named Perpetua. And if you look it up, um, her courage puts most of the men to shame. But he also says, do everything in love, which means we're not desperate. We're not angry. We're not frustrated. We're true to our convictions. Why stand firm? And, I, and this is the inspirational part of it. I look out on this this congregation, I see many sad people. My, my hope is not to depress you this morning, but to set realistic expectations for faith and ministry. And I look out on a, on a whole sea of people that are, that are older and wiser than I am, so I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But there is a panel for. And if you don't stand firm in the faith, you miss the panel for. You miss God restoring things, making things that were tragedies, Beautiful. Think about even for Nehemiah. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel set that foundation and set up the altar and people, people cried. 400 years later, in walks old Zechariah on Zerubbabel's foundation. And he's there offering sacrifice and an angel comes and says, your wife is going to bear a son and he is the forerunner for the Messiah the promised king. It wasn't a question of if God was going to fulfill those promises. It was when. And even for old Zach, he got to see a little bit of the kingdom that you and I get to fully see. Like Jesus' promise that the gates of hell would not prevail. When, that, when he uttered that, the church was small. When that was written down by the apostles, the church was in in its thousands, but it was beset on every side by opposition and cultural, cultural opposition and violent persecution. But you and I both know that now the church, or at least the people that say they, they believe Jesus, numbers in the billions. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our local church will succeed or will last All of the Apostle Paul's churches are gone. But they're not really gone. Because faithful men and women told faithful men and women who told faithful men and women who told faithful men and women. What you do matters. Someday the kingdom will be fully realized. Someday Jesus will return and everything will be restored. And your work, your ministry, your work in your family, in your small group, in your specific program will matter. It's a part of that. Stand firm in the faith. 
Let me give you a couple exhortations, if I could, about life and mission in light of this panel four restoration. I encourage you, when difficulty comes, stand firm together. We are often individualistic in America. Amen? But this is, a, this is a church. You are to stand together. It is really hard to stand firm in the faith by yourself. The old who are wise and who are not naive have a lot to teach the young. And the young who have energy, boundless energy and new ideas have a lot to teach the old. We need each other. Stand firm in the faith together. When you see someone wandering off, discouraged, heartbroken, run and get them and bring them back and say, you are loved and this is supposed to be hard. This is not unusual. Don't be surprised by opposition. Jesus told us there would be opposition. This parable should have warned us, hear this again, listen, a father went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds spouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plants soon wilted under the hot sun and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still, other seeds fell on fertile soil and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, even 100 times more than had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen. Three-fourths, perhaps, of what you do in ministry will not turn out the way that you want it to. But there's that Fourth, that will. And that's what God has called you to do. He told you from day one that's how it would be. And I think he told us that so that when difficulty came and we were discouraged and brokenhearted that we would not run. Remember, brothers and sisters, that you and I are called to make disciples, not to make a utopia. There is no such thing as a perfect family. There is no such thing as a perfect small group or growth group. There is no such thing as a perfect ministry. Even if you volunteer for Awana, and I think you should, it's not going to go perfectly. But you, you know, if you stand firm, you will see the fruit. Uh, what a beautiful thing to plant a church. One of my favorite things is to walk into the back of the auditorium after the music starts and just kind of off to the side and watch people walk in. And they walk in, and they hug each other, and they pray for each other, and they greet each other with love, and all of them are strangers before we started. What was 13 is now 400, and what a joy to watch life after life after life after life change. And if I had run off, if I had quit when difficulty come, I would have missed it all. We have seen seven different families come to know Jesus within a stone's throw of our house. To get to baptize whole families, to get to watch neighbors who, when I first met them, I would greet them on Saturday morning as I'm out watering my lawn that's his size, it's half the size of this front row. And, and there's Brian. Hi, Brian, how's he doing? He's like, nah, don't talk so loud. And now when I greet him on Saturday mornings, how'd it go? Oh, I said, oh man, you know, I got to read a Bible story to 
to uh, Paige and Ella last night. When I drive up in my car often and park, before I can even get out of my car, girls, little girls in the neighborhood have run up to my car and, and are, oh, hi, Pastor Paul. And if I would have run, I would have missed it. I pray that God lets you see the fruit of your labor. Don't be discouraged by those three, that three quarters. Remember the fourth. Stand firm by the power of the Holy Spirit. Colossians says that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is in you. If God wanted your ministry to turn out a certain way, it would turn out a certain way. Trust in that. I also encourage you to stand firm by working in response to the gospel. Here's a gift to you from me out of my own Well, I had to learn this the hard way. Don't do ministry thinking people are going to thank me. Do ministry as a way of saying thanks to Jesus for what he has already done for you. If you do it so people will thank you or applaud, then what's going to happen is disappointment, heartbreak, and bitterness. And and the, the most applause you could possibly get won't fill that hole in your heart anyway. That's a That's something Jesus fills. Just do it out of response to him, and any any thanks can just be bonus. I also encourage you to stand firm with the wisdom of saints through the ages. Think about Paul. Paul was pretty good at ministry. Paul did a lot of things right. Have you read 2 Timothy? It's the last letter that he wrote. At the end of it, he writes to Timothy, and he says, Would you please come visit I'm alone. Everyone in the whole province has deserted me. Would you please bring me something to write with? And would you please bring me a coat? I'm cold. Even in the midst of that discouragement, heartbreak, Paul stands firm in the faith. And also remember the long view, the kingdom fully realize the long view, the things that will outlast you. Some of your ancestors in the faith that heard that instruction from Paul were then given an opportunity either to serve Caesar or to serve Jesus. And the request, well, not a request, an order came from the government, all right, we have some problem with cults and with new religions, we just want to put everybody on the same page, and so what we need you to do is to report And then burn incense to Caesar, declaring that he is Lord above all. And those Christians decided that that was unacceptable, that that was idolatry, and so they refused to burn incense. And so they put them in the Colosseum, and they would wrap them in fresh animal skins. And so here they are wrapped in skins, still dripping blood, and then they would release the lions. And... You have to wonder what they were thinking there at the end as the lions are charging toward them. Were they thinking, man, it's not how I expected this to end. And we, didn't have, we don't have pictures, but we certainly have artists who have, written, have painted what they think that looked like. And as you look at the mangled body parts and the blood and the smoke rising from those that they're burning on, on crosses in the Colosseum, it's hard to look at it and think, wow, that's success. Wow, that's what we thought it was going to be. But as church fathers like Tertullian 
looked at it and they saw that instead of that destroying the church, it made it grow. As those people stood firm in the faith, the other people took notice and said, wow, they really believe that. There's something to this Jesus movement. And he looked at it and he said this beautiful, profound, short statement, the blood of the martyrs is seed. The reason that you know about Jesus and the reason that I know about Jesus is because the people that went before us, when they saw opposition and heartbreak and church hurt, they just stood firm in the faith. And so, brothers and sisters, when you face opposition and heartbreak, stand firm in the faith. When you have something that you try and do that just doesn't work out, steady. Don't run. Don't leave formation. Stand firm in the faith. Our instructions are here in Titus 2. Amid difficulty, opposition, outside conflict, inside conflict, we live out our faith. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people, and we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. We will not fail. We will not scatter. We serve an invincible King Jesus, and he will overcome and he will restore, just as sure as the sun will shine in Walla Walla today. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Thank you for this beautiful, difficult calling that you've given us. Father, I thank you for all the fruit you've shown me. Thank you for bringing me back after I quit. Help me to stand firm in the faith. And Father, I ask for your blessing on all of my brothers and sisters here today. Help them to stand firm in the faith with joy. Give them clarity about their calling. Equip them with the resources they need. And please give them the ability to endure for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.